Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Kleider machen Leute, or Clothes Make the Man, is the title of a novella by the 19th century German author Gottfried Keller who uses that proverb as the jumping off point for a satire on the power of appearances and social conventions in a society obsessed with being appropriately dressed. But the cliche takes on special meaning for members of the armed forces, men and women, whose clothes not only separate them from civilians, but also serve very specific purposes as they perform their duties. The correct clothing is not merely an aesthetic issue. It can be the difference between victory and defeat, Consider members of Napoleon's Grand Army or the Wehrmacht shivering in a Russian winter without winter uniforms. Indeed, the United States Armed Forces devote a great deal of time and attention to developing, testing, and acquiring the right variety of clothing for the various roles played by our fighting men and women. So how complex is that process and what should we know about it? Lucky for us at A Better Peace, we have just the person here to address those questions. Ms. Amy Brayshaw of the War College Class of 2023. Ms. Brayshaw is a senior civilian at the Navy Clothing and Textile Research Facility. In 2022, she was competitively selected for the Department of Defense Defense Senior Leader Development Program and selected by the cohort of the DSDLP to be its president. She spent the last year studying here in Carlisle and has been helping to educate her colleagues on the national security significance of the clothes they wear. Welcome to A Better Peace, Amy Brayshaw. Thank you, Ron. So Amy, what what led you to the War College? Well, as you just mentioned, I applied for DSLDP and was competitively selected. And part of that program uh, for the first year is to attend one of the war colleges, and I was matched with the Army War College. And and was that so? That was uh, was that a random match, or did you? Well, you, there, you had to come to there are right. So there are five um, war colleges, and my cohort members are thirty of us. Were spread across all five war colleges, so we rank our top three, and then we're matched with one of them. Uh, the only criteria is that you cannot attend the war college for the organization that you support. So I'm a Navy civilian, so I could not attend the Navy War College. Interesting. But I'm very happy to be in Carlisle this year. Wonderful. Well, we're, we're happy to have you, right? Full disclosure, Amy is my academic advisee uh, this year, as, as she reminded me in the preparation for this. Of course, I knew that already. But be that as it may, um, I, I think a lot, of our, a lot of our listeners who are not from the War College are always a little surprised to find out that we have uh, DOD civilians uh, among the students in the resident program. And, uh, and, and how you get here is always an interesting subject. So how long have you been with the NCTRF? So I've been with NCTRF since 2007, mm-hmm. so 16 years now. And prior to that, I was a contractor for about four and a half years supporting the air 
uh, Air Force Clothing Office. So I have about 20 plus years of experience now supporting military clothing programs. And your education was in uh, clothing textile. That's correct. I have a master of science in textile technology. So, so let's get, let's get right to it then. So how are uniforms a national security issue? Uh, Well, uniforms are the face of the military. So they're the first thing you see on a military member. They help to identify who's in the military. Um, They provide a sense of professionalism and patriotism connected with being in the military. So they're just the most recognizable piece of being in the military. So they're very important in their appearance and... um, I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, what do you think, uh, what do you think is the biggest misconception that the public has about military uniforms? Um, The biggest misconception probably is that they're easy to develop and provide to military members. Uh, I think once you have an established uniform and you're in production, uh, you know, and something that's been in the system for a while, it's fairly easy to produce. But when we develop new items, it, it takes a long time to develop new items. It takes a long time to introduce them. And every year it becomes more challenging because our supply base is uh, becoming smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that, that in general, right, the domestic textile industry in the United States has been shrinking with yes. uh, uh, outsourcing and offshoring. And how does that right. affect uh, military uniform procurement, right? Are there buy American requirements? Are there? Yes. Yeah. So how does that work? So there's there's the Berry Amendment, which is a requirement that restricts DOD uh, from using funds appropriated for DOD procurement of textile and clothing items mm-hmm. to items that are uh, produced in the United States. And that's everything from the fiber to the fabric to producing them domestically. So as the textile industry and the clothing industry moves more offshore, we have fewer and fewer companies that we can work with. Mm-hmm. So there's a direct impact to the uh, companies, the number of companies that we can work with, the materials that we can source domestically, and um, the costs associated with uh, producing uniforms. Before you came to the War College, but even now that you're at the War College and you're you're interacting with people who wear the things that you help to uh, produce uh, uh, every day, what's the biggest misconception that you think service members have about their uniforms and about the uniform process? So again, it's just most people think that it's an easy thing to do. When we have military members visit NCTRF up up in Natick, Massachusetts, and they see actually the process that goes into making and developing uniforms, it blows them away because they don't think of what we go through to develop new uniforms. For example, we have a, a thermal mannequin that will dress when we're developing flame resistant clothing. We have a mannequin that will dress in a uniform, a protective uniform, we'll expose it to a flame and then we can assess assess the amount of body burn of the uniform. People don't think of these things. You know, they think it's just, oh, you know, I have this uniform, it provides this protection, but so much work goes into making sure that we meet the requirements 
that are given to us by the military so that we can provide protection to warfighters. And that actually is my area of expertise is protective clothing. Well, see, and that's what I was curious about, about protective clothing is, is the, the difference between sort of the day-to-day uh, utilities, say, that a, a Navy or an Army or Air Force service member would wear. The difference between the uh, sort of minimum level of utility and then special clothing that people would wear who have particular jobs that require more protection. How does how, you know, how, yeah. how do you work though? How do you work through that? So most of the dress uniforms, uh, it's what we call you know the typical uniforms that you would see military members wearing at the war college, are made of traditional fabrics that we consider commodity items. You know, um, cotton polyester blends, cotton nylon blends for for the uh, camouflage uniforms, while. Protective clothing, usually we have more technical materials, like I mentioned earlier, flame-resistant materials, ballistic protective materials for body armor, chemical protective materials for chem-bio threats. So they're typically uh, more niche fabrics, more technical fabrics, more costly, and more specialized See, because I, I was just thinking about that. Is it's not as though you can say, "Hey, let's make sure that everybody's clothing protects against everything," because that simply wouldn't be practical. And so, people have to be able to have their their alternative uh, uniforms. So, and, and I'm just going to say one thing that people don't think about, which is a huge challenge in the military, and it's also a, a huge challenge for our textile manufacturers, is shade of clothing. Mm. So, and this is, uh, you know specific to dress uniforms where you have to have a shade, the top has to match the bottom perfectly or it doesn't look right. That is a huge challenge in the military and it's something that we spend a lot of time every year. We get swatches from manufacturers and we make sure that it meets our requirement so that wherever you are in the world, if you purchase a uniform, you know that your top is going to match your bottom. And it's a huge challenge. It's something that most people never think about. So even if you change suppliers, say, or even if the, somebody yes. else wins the contract. We have stringent requirements for shade. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you talk about shade. And and I know in the Army, just in the four years that I've been at the War College, um, the Army made its big change in its dress uniform. Uh, yes. You know, and uh, I don't know if the Navy has made any kind of similar big changes, but how does a big change like that happen? Right. Does It doesn't start with the general saying, man, I wish I looked more like General Eisenhower did. And so let's go back to those uniforms. Or, well, actually, or does yes, it, it does. St- it does. St- <laughs> <laughs> Most of our big programs, our new uniform, like big launches of a new uniform come mm-hmm. from leadership. Mm-hmm wanting their service members to look a certain way or, um, you know, a lot of times a general or an admiral will have an affinity to the uniform that they might have joined the service in or that their uh, parent or grandparent, the uniform that they wore and they want to bring it back. That's been a big theme over the last few years is just, mm-hmm. um, heritage uniforms, I would say, mm-hmm. which I consider the pinks and greens for the army. Sure. That's a, you know, a historical uniform with a certain look 
that the army chose to bring back with modern materials and modern manufacturing techniques. So, yeah. And uh, is there a, once the, once a service settles on a uniform, is there a minimum amount of time they're required to keep it the way it is before they can think of changing it again? No, no. Oh, interesting. Uh, no. And I, I would say the Navy is known for having the most uniforms and every time we make a change, uniforms are so controversial. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, even with this podcast or with any article that gets published regarding uniforms, if you, you know, I, I find it really interesting to read the comments because people are very passionate about their uniforms. They either really like something or really dislike something. Really? Well, and, and that gets to something that we, we've talked about, the about fabric and about protection. Um, is Does your office also deal with questions of camo patterns? Or is that is that a yes. decision made someplace else? So that yeah, okay, go ahead. Because I know this but is usually, also something people feel passionate. So usually a service will have a vision of what they want. And so usually when we develop something, there's a vision number one. We're supposed to get a requirements document mm-hmm. from the customer or okay. the user. Right. We don't that doesn't always happen. So we have to work with them to figure out what they want. And for example, when I supported the Air Force clothing office about 20 years ago, they wanted to bring back the tiger stripe from that had been one of their uniforms decades ago. So we had a starting point. We knew, okay, this is what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. This is the these are the colors that they want. And so that was kind of the jump off point for developing that camouflage. Right. Uh, so that was that was in production until about five years ago, I think. And then the Air Force has now uh, adopted the Army's OCP as their uniform. Well, and because there there is the I know the Marine Corps feels very. Uh as in a lot of things, right? I don't want to get more comments yes. on this either, but the army, the, the, the Marine Corps feels particularly uh, proprietary about their camel patterns and that they're different from others. And, yes. and the issue and, of- And they're at the, so they have a, what's called a, what's called a digital mm-hmm. uh, camouflage pattern. And interestingly, the first military that I'm aware of to have a digital pattern was the Canadian army. Wow. And do we know why the Canadians uh, chose? Uh, says, you know, full, full disclosure, right? Amy Brashaw uh, is a native of Guelph, Ontario, and so is herself uh, a, a a Canadian, uh, a, you know, I don't know, like a Canadian undercover agent working. But I wouldn't just blow your cover for the uh, uh, working for the U.S. government. But do we know why the Canadians started with the digital? Pen? No, I, I don't know the history on how it was developed. All I know is that they were the first hmm. to ha- that I'm aware of to have the digital pattern. The one of the interesting things about uniforms, of course, where we joke about colors and the color that we're all supposed to be aspiring to is purple for jointness. And yet every service also has a very clear idea of what their uniforms should look like. And 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 it's all about you, know, you, you want to fit in with the group that you're in and distinguish yourself from groups that you're not in. Um, has there been any pressure for a, or more universalization of military uniforms in the U.S. armed forces? Yes, actually, uh, there is, you know, the goal is to have as much commonality as possible. But Mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, there are differences between services and within services, which are always a challenge. Uh, But from my perspective, as a technical 
expert in textiles and clothing, I work closely with my counterparts at the other services to at least consider similar designs or similar materials, even if the colors are different or if the designs are slightly different. We try and partner as much as possible because we only have, as I mentioned earlier, we have such a small supply base. So it's in everyone's interest to work together as much as possible. But I should mention that when I started supporting military programs in 2002, all of the services wore the same woodland camouflage pattern. Really? And then over the course of about 10 years, you know, first the Marine Corps adopted their Marine Corps camouflage, then I believe it was the Army, then the Air Force, then the Navy. So within about 10 years, they all branched out to unique prints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now the Air Force, as I mentioned earlier, is wearing the same print as the Army. Again, they just have different name tapes. Um, the, The thread color is different. I think that's how they distinguish between services. So I feel like we're coming full circle. We're heading back towards, okay, more commonality and we'll see what happens. But right now, only the Air Force and the Army are wearing the same camouflage uniform. So two two new developments in uniforms. And and I um, I don't want to put you on the spot to have to critique the choices of, of our government, but I'm going to put you on the spot to critique the choices of our government. One is the, the reveal of the Space Force uniforms, mm. which are, uh, let's say, uh, unique to Space Force. Um, but also there has recently been a, uh, a rollout of new uh, pregnancy uniforms, or there's been a lot of discussion about creating appropriate uniforms for pregnant maternity, maternity, I should say, that's right, for yes. maternity service, uh, maternity uniforms. And how does that work? I mean, I guess uh, first let's, we'll, we'll start with the easy question. That is, what do you think of the Space Force uniforms? So they're definitely unique. They're definitely a service identifier And potentially, if someone liked that uniform so much, they might want to join the Space Force, you know, because it does have a modern look to it. So that uniform, the Space Force, I'm not exactly sure what process they use to develop that uniform. I think, you know, I'm not the expert on that uniform, Mm -hmm. but it definitely has a unique look to it. Right. The conscious decision. And it, you know, from my perspective, it looks like it would be difficult to manufacture, but, and, and I know the, the initial prototypes had a lot of issues. Right. Right. But, you know, I'm not sure where it stands from a production standpoint at right now. And, and I but, guess I, I'm thinking about the, the, uh, the dress uniform, but I haven't asked. Does do, do Space Force wear the same camel patterns as the Army? Or do I they- believe so. I believe so. But when I look at that, so one of the challenges in in developing a uniform item is ensuring that you have a uniform that will fit the entire population of that service, and that's <clears throat> that's a big challenge because you have different genders, different um, heights you know, uh, chest sizes, all different body dimensions that you have to, you want uniformity Mm -hmm. 
in these uniforms. So you want to make sure who whoever is wearing the uniform looks exactly like every other service member. That's the goal. And it's a huge challenge. Well, and that's ensuring that you have a size for every single service member. And when I look at the Space Force uniform, Mm -hmm. their dress uniform, it looks like it would be very challenging to fit uniformly across the service. But I'm sure that that's something they've thought of. We can certainly we can certainly hope that that's something they thought yes. of, right? Well, but but talking about uniforms that fit, right? The maternity uniform question is: yes. you know, this is a you know in a in a modern service uh, uh, in a service where 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 uh, people are able to serve uh, in a variety of capacities and are able to serve even while uh, while in maternity, let's say. Um, how you know how how did how did that work, or how has that worked? So I believe that you're talking about. The flight suit. Yeah, the flight suit is the one that I'm really. Yes, of. yes, that's right. I mean, yes, that was controversial. So was very you know, the flight suit is interesting because it it is also a community identifier. You right. know, when yeah. you see someone wearing the flight suit, and we see it at the War College, you know, they're not flying a plane that day, but they're in their flight suit because it it connects them to that community. They've earned that, right. and they're proud of it. So that's no different than providing a maternity uniform to a female pilot Mm -hmm. or crew member. Mm -hmm. You know, they've earned that. They should be able to wear the uniform because they're going to be working through their pregnancy. And so they might not be doing everything they would do if they weren't pregnant wearing that uniform, but it provides them with that community identifier and just, you know, that's, that's how you recognize them as being a, a pilot or a crew member. Right. But one thing I wanted to mention in terms of maternity clothing and female uniforms, women's uniforms are, are a huge challenge uh, for protective clothing. Most protective clothing and equipment is designed around a male's body. So one of the things that my organization has focused on a lot over the last 10 years or so is developing female-specific clothing and equipment, Mm. just like the uh, maternity flight suit. But one of the things that NCTRF has done, which I think is something that we need to do more of in the future, is we've been running a pilot program on maternity clothing for female sailors to wear when they're pregnant so they don't have to buy all new maternity uniforms, which is a huge expense as a female that uh, male warfighters don't have to, you know, it's not a requirement for them. So the pilot project has been extremely successful and it enables uh, a female sailor to get all the uniforms she needs during her pregnancy and all the maternity uniforms and then wear them for the duration of the pregnancy and then return them at the end. And then they're repurposed, cleaned, and, and then provided to another uh, female sailor. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, you know, uh, from a, uh, you know, most of those uniforms have, they're not worn that much. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a good opportunity to reuse and recycle so it, it's a good message, too, in terms of it's a more environmentally friendly approach to reusing uniforms instead of just having some having them sit in someone's closet 
after they have children and not be used by another service member. Because it's not, it's not yeah. as though in, in perhaps among, among friends, right. You can, you can share maternity clothes, but nobody's right. going to pull their uniform out of a closet and say, here, you know, I wore these, try this one. Right. So. Interesting. And, and of course the, these are, these are, are, are legitimate questions, right? If people are going to be serving, right. They have to wear the appropriate uniform. And so the uniforms have to be designed to be available for everybody. Exactly. And, and sometimes we run into issues where we develop all the sizes and, and different body types, different shapes of clothing items, but they're not available mm. for purchase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we always are very passionate about when we go into exchanges, you know, make sure that you have these items available so that people can get in the right size, because there's nothing worse than having clothing that doesn't fit correctly. Right. Oh, that's a very so. good point. Yeah. And, and, and I know that's a, that's an issue all for itself, right? The idea about, you know, uh, our, if there's consolidation among the exchanges and if people are told, well, yes, we have that available within 250 miles of where you are, but perhaps not at the exchange at your installation, right? That can be right. a problem. Well, so Amy, with all this, uh, uh, to, to shift away from the, the specific to get more general, I am curious, what has your experience been like as a DOD civilian at the Army War College? So in our class, there are only 27 civilians mm-hmm. in a class of, I believe, 370. That's about right, yeah. Around. And um, so that means there are approximately, there's approximately one civilian for every seminar. So in, I'm in seminar 10, as you know, and I'm the sole civilian in our seminar. So I provide the civilian perspective, which I think brings a different perspective to conversations that we have in our seminar. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll bring up things that other people in the seminar might not think of. So for me, it's been, you know, it's a two way street. I've learned so much from my seminar mates and hopefully they've learned something from my background and experience. Well, and, 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 you know, there is the, uh, there's the double question here, right? So one is, what's it like to be a civilian? And the other one is, what's it like to be a woman at the United States Army War College? How's that been? There are more of there are more women in general than there are civilians, I believe. Yes, there are. Uh, but still, in my seminar of 16 people, there are two females in my seminar. So, you know, again, it's just having that different perspective when we have conversations, when you're in an all, you know, our, our faculty are, are all male, you know, most of my classmates are male and just having the female perspective and the civilian perspective brings a different part to the conversation. So. Yeah. And, uh, and on the whole, on the whole, uh, and I, I asked this question both uh, in front of the, in front of all the public as your academic advisor on the whole, how's your year been at the army? It's been fantastic. I've learned so much. I've met so many amazing people. I've grown as a person and as a professional. I've, you know, it's just been life-changing. And what are you going to do next? So as we discussed earlier, I'm in the Defense Senior Leader Development Program, Mm -hmm. and it's actually a two-year program. So it runs until April of 2024. So when I graduate, I will do what's called an experiential assignment. 
And that's to get experience doing something different from what I've done previously, which as you know, you've seen today is very specialized. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be doing a uh, one year experiential assignment at the Pentagon at the uh, office of the undersecretary of defense for personal personnel and readiness, and will be uh, part of a, a task force called task force 2040, which is looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility policy and strategy development. Wow. All right. And so, so that's so very that, different. Yeah. So not, not so much, not less about the uniforms and more about the people who are in the uniforms, I guess. Exactly. Interesting. Well, great. exactly. But you know, uniforms and DEA are also connected and important. So, mm -hmm. you know, having a diverse population and ensuring that they feel included by providing them with clothing and equipment that fits and meets their requirements is so important. So it does tie into uniforms. Sure. Well, and that's that brought us brought us full circle on this conversation. Well, uh, Amy Brayshaw, thanks so much for joining us on A Better Peace to talk about your work up to now, your work at the War College, and your work going forward. Good luck finishing out the year, and good luck on your next assignment. Thank you, Ron. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Peace because you should want to subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have done so, please take a moment again and rate and review this podcast because rating and reviewing is how other people can find out about it so that we can continue to grow the, the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we hope to welcome you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.